0: farming program with Araquist steel stockholders Withambrook Industrial Estate Grantham For all your steel needs call their friendly experts
1: A wet week last week and another predicted this week Despite the hot dry summer the risk of flooding is greater than ever
0: England had its joint hottest summer on record with some regions still struggling with drought Despite this since 1998 the UK has seen 6 of the 10 wettest years on record And Lincolnshire has a new ag zone
2: What's one of those? It's to complement our um, UK Food Valley programme and all the investment that we've currently made in our food enterprise zone.
1: Plus we'll hear about some new stuff shown at the Midlands Machinery Show in Newark last week, meet a recent Lifetime Achievement Award winner and of course there's agronomy advice and the crop and market reports.
3: The Week in Agriculture. This is the Farming Programme. With Steve Orchard.
1: Rural communities are being urged to prepare for winter flooding. During the recent flood action week, the Environment Agency warned of ignoring the danger at your own peril. Overstating it? Panicking? Not really. Here's the farming programme's Charlotte Lineker.
0: The agency is saying that unexpected flooding could occur at any time. Farming and rural communities are being warned not to be complacent following this summer's dry weather. This year alone, the UK experienced its highest ever recorded temperatures as the Met Office confirmed that England had its joint hottest summer on record with some regions still struggling with drought. Despite this, since 1998, the UK has seen six of the ten wettest years on record and this year, for the first time ever, saw three named storms in one week. As part of DEFRA's new campaign, three steps have been highlighted, those being check flood risks online, sign up for flood warnings and know what to do if flooding hits. Caroline Douglas, Executive Director of Flooding at the Environment Agency, said we're seeing more extreme weather. That is why it's vital that people take the necessary preparations as early as possible to prepare for the worst. At least one in six people in England are at risk from flooding from rivers and the sea, with many more at risk from surface water flooding. And despite research showing that almost two thirds of people have taken at least one action to prepare for flooding, as many as 1.5 million households who are at risk are yet to prepare. Will Lang from the Met Office explained that winters in the UK usually included a wide variety of weather, and this winter looked to be no exception. He said, although we expect to see high pressure dominating our weather through much of the early winter, which increases the potential for cold spells, we could still see wet and windy weather at times. The risk of unsettled weather increases as we head into 2023, with wet, windy, and mild spells a real possibility. There's more advice and flood alerts online at gov.uk.
1: Greater Lincolnshire has the UK's leading agriculture sector, with over 75,000 people employed in farming and food production, and over £2 billion worth of crops and livestock produced every year. We also now have an ag zone. What's one of those? Deputy Chair of the Greater Lincolnshire Local Enterprise Partnership Sarah Louise Fairburn explains.
2: So the Ag Zone is like another addition to this jigsaw that we're trying to create in Greater Lincolnshire and should I say actually not trying we are creating something amazing in Lincolnshire. It's to complement our UK Food Valley programme and all the investment that we've currently made in our food enterprise zone so Obviously, agriculture is absolutely the heart of everything we do in Lincolnshire, and we need to support our agricultural businesses to innovate, grow, and have the right skills. So the Ag Zone is going to embody that in absolute abundance, and it will um, form everything that we need in a Centre for Excellence for Agriculture, basically, which we are naming an Agricultural Growth Zone.
1: So on practical terms, what does an Ag Zone actually do?
2: So the Ag Zone will have a whole host of experts from the food sector to scientists to all our educational partners that are exceptional. It'll be working on the latest innovations for agriculture. So working really heavily on digital tech, automation, robotics, and it's also going to form a huge skills pipeline for our next gen. So we'll be able to bring people that are very much interested in working in the new generation of how agriculture is going to be and training them uh, just as that. So no longer is it going to be you know, picking potatoes from a field, it's gonna be how can we do that using the latest tech? To make sure that we're you know enhancing and maximizing yields and we're picking the, the right product that's at the right um, phase in its cycle so that it's not rejected and, and all those incredible things that we can now do with tech and it's going to be in one place which is really important so all our businesses can be really heavily involved as well to make sure that it's genuinely supporting their sector to be able to grow really sustainably because The food sector is like, you know, everywhere at the moment under such significant pressure. And the reality is, Steve, that we have a a huge responsibility to the people of the country to make sure we can continue to produce food, you know, as affordably as we can, given the climate. And we've got some really cool technology in this county. And it's about how do we harness that and and, and do it in a way that we can roll out so that it's going to deliver for, for our businesses, really.
1: So where's this going to be and who's involved?
2: There are so many partners involved and that's why I just know it's going to be another huge roaring success. So it's going to be obviously the university, Bishop Burton, obviously the showground because it's literally just opposite the showground, Barker's Eagle Labs, which has been hugely successful for the food sector so far, especially bringing new sort of entrepreneurs into the food sector, West Lindsay District Council, the Ag Society, Lincolnshire County Council and, of course, the LEp the amount of interest in this is just I'm not gonna say it's surprising because when we launched the Food Valley last November, I don't think any of us I think we all believed in it hugely and what we was trying to achieve, but none of us actually believed that the amount of investment that was going to come from that and the amount of interest from investors, not just from the UK but from overseas and genuinely the technology that, that we are creating in Lincolnshire is, is world leading and it's gonna really attract more and more investment. But more importantly, it's going to enable our farmers to grow and our agricultural enterprise to continue to grow, and we need to get the right people with the right skills um, it, it involved, and that's what this is absolutely about. It's about not talking, it's about the doing bit. You know, we're, you know, we can all sit around the table having all these amazing ideas and saying what all the problems and the challenges are, but this genuinely is going to help support and address um, a lot of the challenges and particularly as well around net zero and the challenges that that brings for our farmers now. I know it's a very overused term now, but... We just need to be so mindful of that because carbon credits are going to be a huge thing. It's going to put a lot of pressure on our natural environment, but also, you know, on our pockets if we're not careful. And we need to be farming much more efficiently and much more cleanly than we ever have done before. And again, the ag zone is going to be the center of excellence for that. So our businesses can reach out to the ag zone and work on new practices that they can act translate into their business into something that's really positive which is just so important for greater lincolnshire
1: absolutely it's a brilliant idea more power to your elbow where could people go to find out more about the ag zone sarah louise
2: please reach out to any of us all our contact details are on um, the greater lincolnshire website i would encourage everybody to be following the uk food valley on linkedin and the lep on all the different social media channels because you'll get relevant updates and All the contact details are on there and we really want to be talking to people about how we can support them and equally how they can bring in knowledge, um, intelligence and also investment into into what we're trying to achieve here for the greater good.
1: All right, Sarah-Louise Fairburn, the best of luck. I'm sure it'll be a rip-roaring success. Thanks for joining us on the Farming Programme. Thank you, Steve. And it can only do good, and we're happy to support the Ag Zone at the Farming Programme. If you're involved, drop me an email and we'll have a chat. Farming at linksfm.co.uk. A wet week in the fields, but a few cold nights too. How's that affecting the crops? Good morning to our crop doctor, Sean Sparling.
4: Yes, morning, Steve. Couple of good frosts then in the last seven days. Two good, rimey ones for me at home. I needed to defrost the windscreen on a couple of occasions. And by the way, I know how wet it is. I'm just trying to talk about something other than the rain for a change. And as I said last week, best to stay away from spraying onto crops if that was the first frost since they emerge. Just giving it one night free of frost is enough to let the wax rebuild and protect the crop again. So once that emerged crop has had a frost on it and you've had a night without frost, then from then on just stop spraying by about 3.30 in the afternoon preceding any forecast frost and don't apply to a rime-covered leaf. Not least because of the risk of crop damage, but anything you apply to rime, whether it be the crop or the the weed you're aiming at is going to stick on the rime and wash off as soon as the rime melts. Aphids remain relatively hard to find for me spiders do not, plenty of those still out there. So where BYDV applications are still to be applied, I'm not panicking too much, particularly out on crops where the drilling was delayed, whether by design for BYDV or whether because of the weather or because of blackgrass. And since our tools for aphid control have been either taken away from us in the case of neonicotinoids like deter, or have become impotent against the resistant enemy in the case of things like pyrethroids, in those cases, cultural controls like delaying the drilling and implemented IPM where we work to thresholds and beneficials like spiders etc are embraced and protected especially on these later drillings which are only at half to one leaf at best at the moment and haven't had anything like that 170 growing day degrees required to trigger panic. Now if you need help to panic and you need help working out when to start to panic syngenta have an app called bydv assist if you put in the drilling date the emergence date and the location that will calculate the 170 growing day degrees once that's reached then if you can find aphids that's when you start to think about spraying. So plenty of spiders out there as I say still doing their job and there's a lot of data reinforcing what many of us have long thought about BYDV. If you remember the last really bad autumn for virus I think it was 2011 if my memory serves uh, the only crops not affected by virus were those where the seed was treated with neonics like Deter. Fields treated with pyrethroids whether singly or multiply in that autumn all had plenty of virus symptoms showing and that tells you two things. Firstly pyrethroid are nowhere near as effective as we would like to think they are and secondly the resistance issues are going to be far more widespread 10 years on than they were back in 2011 there was actually a study done between 2017 and 19 three year study down in the southwest of the uk the reason they did it down there is that's the highest risk area for virus in the uk and they monitored aphids daily and weekly untreated fields were compared to single and multiple application of pyrethroids they had bydv tolerant varieties like wolverine And there were five sites in all and they reached four conclusions. Firstly, there was no significant number of aphids seen in any of those three years in any of the fields. So nothing really worth treating. Secondly, no virus was seen in any of those fields. No leaf symptoms at all, which probably follows on from the first point. Thirdly, no yield benefit from the use of pyrethroids in any of those three years in those situations. And fourthly, no yield benefit from drilling a BYDV tolerant variety in any of those years. So in other words, in the BYDV hotspot of the UK aphids are not a problem every year they need to be monitored closely and not treated routinely this year we all know the traps have trapped many many more than they would normally do thousands rather than dozens But it's absolutely crucial that we as advisors, if we're not finding them, we should not be spraying for them. That's what IPM is. So take account of that when you're making your decisions. If you, as I can and have been for the last three weeks, find more predators than pests, and those tens of thousands of little money spiders are predators, then you should be preserving those little predators by not spraying them. Aphids live for about a month, by the way, but they can be hugely prolific. They're born with two fully formed live young in the pipe and they'll give birth every eight days and after eight days, each one of those young will produce young. So they can produce, they can be prolific. What I'm trying to say is, if you can find them easily and they're over threshold and the pest is outnumbering the predators in your field then clearly you have to react but do give it some thought and treat fields individually on their own merits where possible you'll have hot spots on your farm too and you probably already know where they are if you do have to spray then pick a pyrethroid with the best beneficial profile because those beneficials are going to be helping us all through the winter and we'll carry on doing so right through next spring so we do need to look after them there were plenty of aphids earlier earlier on but far fewer now now the more leaf area the higher the risk of virus issues And that means that the earlier drilled crops are going to be higher risk. So do speak to your advisor. A lot of slugs about again, but do prioritise the recently drilled crops over established ones. Slugs do far more harm more quickly from hollowing the grain than they ever do from grazing. Ferrous phosphate doing a really good job this year. Monitor and trap for slugs as well, rather than just blanket bomb them. It's always the best approach, the cheapest approach too, of course. Slug numbers do vary considerably across the county and also across farms from field to field. So do stay alert. All seed rape, more light leaf spot than there was last week. Nothing worth getting worried about, I don't think. So do keep your eyes open. And remember, it's not about controlling light leaf spot. It's about stopping it getting any worse within the canopy. And the cooler weather will do as much, if not way more good, as the weeks go by in that respect. Because a fungicide is going to give you three weeks protection at best. A good hard winter will give you several months. So eyes open, but do treat accordingly. Still way too warm for curb products, so do hang your fire there to save your money and make sure you get the most out of the product. Winter beans up and running quite nicely now at two leaf pairs, but really nothing to do on winter beans as long as you've got the pre-em on. You're sitting pretty until at least February. So, that'll do. Let's see what the next seven days bring.
1: Thanks as ever, Sean.
0: The Farming Programme, with our equipped steel stockholders, Withambrook Industrial Estate Grantham, supplying the region for over 40 years.
1: Phil Stocker is the Chief Exec of the National Sheep Association and has been a welcome contributor to the farming programme many times when we've been talking about the sector. Recently, he was recognised for his outstanding contribution to British agriculture at the British Farming Awards. Phil, congratulations, obviously, but how did it
5: feel being honoured at such an important event? I guess it brings it home to you with that crowd of people around you as well, just what it means in that company and in that setting. It's quite moving, actually. I was aware of it previously, but for it to be announced publicly and then uh, to go through the process of going up and receiving it, it's a real, real honour. And I I must say, I've had some most wonderful emails and texts and messages from people since then as well, just um, saying how good it is and congratulating me and I'm not the only person in the world who works very, very hard, but it makes all that effort and hard work worthwhile to get that sort of accolade.
1: Absolutely, and it's not just for your work at the NSA. You're involved in lots of other groups as well, aren't you?
5: Yeah, I am. Um, again, I've had a you know a long career before I joined the NSA. I've worked in agriculture all my life, I guess, and uh, certainly for the last 25 years, I've been working in a farming development or agriculture development and uh, policy situation, and I think... You know, throughout all of that period, I've you know done my best to try and influence things in a direction that I believe is the right way. But yeah, outside of um, my direct work with the NSA, I'm involved with a, a number of things. You know, directorship of a, a number of organisations, Rosa, the Register of Sheep Advisors, British Heritage Sheep. We're trying to create opportunities to support the diversity that we've got in our sheep industry. I chair a, a land use partnership over in the Black Mountains on the the Welsh English border. That's trying to bring together the interests of the landowners. And the national park and the and the farmers and the graziers together again a fascinating piece of work but something i'm passionate about if we're going to get the management of our land agriculture and delivering good environmental outcomes and uh, you know doing what we can for climate change and doing what we can for nature and if we're to reconcile all those interests we've got to find ways of working together so again it's a really interesting piece of work and it's been hard work it's not easy but it's it's an honor to be asked to to do that sort of work so you know, I, along with a lot of other people, I guess, are just passionate about this um, this industry. And um, like most farmers, I guess it becomes more than just a job. It becomes a, a, a life, a way of life.
1: Well, more power to your elbow, and long may it continue, uh, Phil. How is the sheep sector at the moment?
5: I, I would say things are OK. If you look at the state of the market and the state of um, trade and the demand for sheep meat globally, I think things are, are still fairly strong. You know, we have to recognise that we're in a a really difficult national and global economic situation. We've got some difficult times ahead of us, but the sheep industry has come through this last 12 months of rising input costs really, really very well. We're low users of um, a lot of those inputs that have gone up in price, you know, fertilizer, feed, fuel, and lots and lots of other inputs as well. And we've been quite resilient through that process, largely because we're a relatively low input and low output system, although high value output. But I am a little bit concerned as we come into this winter with the weather conditions uh, uh, as they are. You know, this is the time of year where people are going to be starting to feed their stock. Feed prices will have gone up. And I am worried that the the input costs are going to just wipe away some of those higher values that we've seen over the last couple of years now. So I'm still really, really positive. If you look globally, um, you know, the demand for sheep meat is still on the increase. We're opening up new markets in the U.S. just recently. And we had a first small shipment of lamb over to the U.S., there's some hard work going on in, uh, in other countries around the world for us to gain access to. You know, so I'm still optimistic that we've got a really strong future. And I'm really, really optimistic about the fact that sheep farming fits so well into this whole sustainable farming, regenerative agriculture, whatever you want to call it. You know, we fit so well into that mold um, that I think that this sector has got a really strong future ahead of it.
1: Absolutely. Now you talk about rising input prices, which is affecting every aspect of farming. Let's face it. Is there anything you can do about that, or is it just leading to higher prices in the shops inevitably in the
5: future? No, I think there's a lot that we can do about it. It's not always easy because sometimes it needs investment and it needs confidence that the the our investments are being made in the right place. So the key thing I think for sheep farmers, as far as the sheep farming enterprise is concerned making sure that investments that we make, maybe in feed, maybe in, 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 in vaccines, uh, maybe in handling equipment, that those investments are investments that really pay their way and return uh, an improvement in terms of profitability you know it is about things like making sure that we're feeding users adequately and we're keeping their body condition at an optimum level and we're feeding them enough so that they can produce a, a good crop of lambs but not over feeding them that is wasteful economically and it's wasteful in terms of our carbon footprint as well so it is more about fine-tuning the business and making sure that we're trying to reduce losses and waste. You know, Lameness would be another one uh, on farms uh, where sometimes it's really difficult to get people to take up the use of um, foot rot vaccines, but we do know that if people are prepared to invest in those sorts of products, it will reduce the time that they have to spend bringing sheep in and treating them. It'll reduce antibiotic use and it's good for the welfare of sheep. So you know, But getting farmers to understand that that bit of investment up front is an investment that's going to pay is really difficult. But that's where a lot of farms, I think, need to focus their efforts is to just really focusing on their, their business, understanding the things that really make them money and the things where their costs may be higher than they need to be. And it's just fine tuning their, their their sheep farming systems in that way. And then I think there's other opportunities such as um, renewable energy. I think that's going to be a big one for farmers too, both solar and, and wind and, and hydro and you know can we get to a point where we're buying in less energy and we're producing more of our own and maybe again add into the farm profitability by producing um, energy and reducing our carbon footprint but it needs investment up front and i think that's a challenge for a, a lot of farms and it's also a challenge at the moment because we've got um such turmoil i guess in our farming policy just at the moment uh, some concerning signals in terms of changes of policy direction and i think you know what farmers need is long-term signals so that they can make those long-term investments knowing that they're on the right trackway.
1: because farming is let's face it a long-term business isn't it you don't do something that's going to show results this month next month six months it's we're talking two three years minimum for many sectors aren't we mm.
5: That's absolutely right. It's, it's all uh, long-term business. You know, these are long production cycles with sheep. You know, we're talking about annual production cycles, and a lot can change uh, within a year. You look at, look at the way that the world has changed over the last two years or so, and it was only uh, just over a year ago, I guess, when more and more of our policies were going towards um, the environment and, and the delivery of public goods. And then we saw the Ukraine war and disruption in food supply. And now, suddenly and thankfully, I think there's a Greater recognition of the importance of of food and um there could have been a lot of farmers that would have in a way stepped away from food production a year ago two years ago if our policy mechanisms would have been more advanced, mm. and we may well have regretted that now if um you know if our food production and our food supply had had uh, been damaged because of that so it's really difficult we do want long term signals, and I think we need to get to a point where we've got less of a this pendulum swing of um as far as farming is concerned you know food production at one stage and then and then we tuff it off of the gas there and, and and it's all about environmental land management you know we've got to get the balance right you know farming has always been a really multifunctional functional um, activity where we're trying to balance a whole range of different things you know producing enough good quality food but alongside leaving a, a good countryside in our wake and we need policies that are stable and and give long-term signals at least we
1: do seem to be getting some positive signals it would have been nice had these signals been a bit more positive and a bit more clear um maybe over the last two or three years well we can't turn the clock Mm. back but it would have been nice had we had a bit of clarity over the last couple of years rather than as you say a pendulum swing between one aspect and another aspect of
5: farming so much of this is about communication too because if i think back to uh, deference policies over this last six or seven years, you know, food production has always been a, a part of their their, their mix of, of objectives, what they're trying to achieve. But there's never really been communicated effectively. And all the attention has been on Elm's environmental land management schemes. Yet productivity incentives, capital grants, um, innovation funding, uh, ways to get farmers to improve their productivity. has all been part of the mix, but they've never managed to communicate that effectively. So one thing is about um, getting the policies right. The other thing is communicating it so that everyone is aware of where we're going and, and is clear about our future. Phil,
1: fascinating to talk to you as ever. We've put the world to rights for the last few minutes and let's just hope somebody listens. Phil Stocker, congratulations again on your outstanding contribution to agriculture title at the British Farming Awards recently and long may your work at the NSA and many other organisations continue. Thanks for joining us, Phil.
5: Thank you very much, Steve. Much appreciated.
1: The Midlands Machinery Show returned to Newark showground last week and a good old walk round chatting to some of the exhibitors, many of whom are showing something new this year. For instance, Sharman's brought the JCB Fast Track to make its show debut. Mark Wildman, product specialist at Sharman's.
3: Fast Track is uh, an equal size wheeled, uh, fully suspended agricultural tractor. The models that we have here is a 4220, uh, which is a 220-horsepower uh, rated engine. They have four-wheel steer, uh, crab steer and two-wheel steer. They enjoy a 50-50 weight distribution between front and rear axles. They have self-levelling hydraulic double-acting suspension. They are also uh, fully guidance ready. can be set up with guidance from any other manufacturer as well. And I'm told these are nice and comfortable too. They're very comfortable on the road. They're very comfortable in the field. Uh, It's the only agricultural tractor that's legal to do the 40 miles an hour on the road because of its classification, but it's not all about comfort, it's all about safety as well. The braking system on the tractor is compatible with a lorry braking system. The new model we have here is the Icon, uh, which has replaced the uh, 4220 AgriPro model, which came out and was first released for sale in 2015.
1: More information on the JCB Fast Track at shamans agri.co.uk. Thank you, Mark. Burdens were showcasing the new New Holland T7. We have two Adams to tell us about it from
6: their louths and brake depots. So here we have the new T7 uh, 315 um, HD PLM Intelligence. And what's unique for this now for us is the new um, Horizon Plus cab. The old Horizon cab was first introduced in 2003. Uh, and now they've introduced this which will come across a whole range of tractors in time giving us some new architecture and some new cab space.
1: Okay, so what's different about this compared to the old one?
6: The cab is 7% deeper, there's 33% more glass area um, with the new armrest, the new Sidewinder Ultra Armrest, new PLM12 touchscreen display and just a far better touch feel in the cab, more automotive sort of feel for the operator to enjoy those long days. Okay,
1: what does the PLM do?
6: PLM's just our precision land management, so it's just a way of identifying what the the cab is.
7: So this new Horizon Ultra cab's moved down to the long wheelbase range, which you'll have just seen launched in the press, and New Holland are taking the configurable approach, so the the main thing they're pushing is the configurability of the cab. So everything in there you can tailor to either per operator or per implement to suit exactly how you would want to use it.
1: Thanks to Adams, Terry and Reynolds from Burdens. More about the new Holland T7 at burdensgroup.com. And it wasn't just shiny new tractors and equipment at the Midlands Machinery Show. There was new software too. Paul Creasy, general manager at Lemken, told me about their digital solution
8: IQ Blue. So IQ Blue, a piece of technology that we've developed over the last two, three years. Primary use is to work with a number of our Lemkin machines to talk to the tractor so the two machines can talk and make adjustments on the move. In practical terms, what does that mean? So certainly if we take uh, one of our cultivators, we can then adjust depth of machine. We can adjust working width on on some machines, like a vary width plough. So again, we could be saving time because we're not having to run the machine as deep over the whole field. There could be areas that can run shallower so time diesel so that's the primary use of it
1: and does this just work with lemkin machines
8: no it doesn't it's in development but i think the future could be that the iq blue from lemkin could be fitted to another manufacturer's machine does that mean then that the farmer's spending less time on and off the tractor absolutely what we've not had before without iq blue if an adjustment needed to be made on the tractor linkage with iq blue that adjustment can happen nobody's got to get off there's no handles to adjust turnbuckles to move so that's the key
1: More info at lemken.com. Thank you, Paul. And there'll be more from the Midlands Machinery Show on next week's farming programme, including talking sustainability with NFU Vice President David Exwood. And don't forget it's CropTech next week at the East of England showground Peterborough on Wednesday and Thursday. I look forward to seeing you there. To the weekly market reports now, starting with livestock and from Louth auctioneer Oliver Chapman. Morning, Oliver.
6: Good morning, Steve. Another weekly roundup from here at Louth for Monday the 14th of November. Starting with the prime cattle, which the steers sell to 236 pence per kilo and gross £1,330 for J.E. Thirlby of Kexby, while the heifers top at 233 pence per kilo and gross £1,185 for J.C. Scoglia Bournemouth. On to the cool cows and large and expected show, leaving an all in average of £122.04. To top with younger feeding cows at 152 pence per kilo for W. Taylor & Co. While in the pounds per head, they top at 1,054 pounds and 20 pence for JS s Brooks of Strubby with older cows. Moving on to the sheet, 189 lambs SQQ at 248.82 pence per kilo, with an all-in average of 241.18 pence per kilo. Top goes to Jack Grattan at 263 pence per kilo, and W. Wright & Son of Ruton at 125 pounds per head. On to the cool ewes and seventy-five all-in average eighty-seven pound and eighty-four pence dear on the week with a lot better show of views forward to top for J.A. and R. and C.J. Jackson of Oscoby at £170. Finally, store lambs and just a handful on offer, to all in average £63.24, to top for S. Doherty of Boston at £117. Huge thank you to everyone that's been in support this week. Just two weeks away is our annual Christmas Fat Stock Show and Sale, with all entries still being taken for that. And on Friday, the 2nd of December, is our annual Fat Stock Dinner. So, again, for all entries or to book tickets for that, please not hesitate to contact me. And next Monday is store cattle week with sort of 20 to 30 already entered. So, for all entries, whether that be for fat stock, store cattle, or our weekly markets, please not hesitate to contact me. This is Oliver Chapman for Masons and Louth Market. And thank you. Thanks,
1: Oliver. And with the Grey Market Review, Open Fields, Kit Dickinson. Morning, Kit. Well,
7: good morning, Steve. Wheat futures traded sharply lower on both sides of the Atlantic as the market prices in an extension to the grain export corridor. This is despite Russian intensifying hostilities during the G20 meeting almost as a show of defiance with two missiles finding their way into Poland, the origin of which is yet to be determined. The reward for these hostilities appears to be softening of sanctions led by the UN and Turkey, which would help Russian exports of grain and fertiliser, especially if Russian's Rosel Honsbank is reinstated in the SWIFT system. Recent Russian missile attacks are concentrating on Russian power and infrastructure, both of which are vital for goods to be moved for export, particularly as we move into the Russian winter months. For now, at least, the market does not care about the sharp drop in Argentine wheat production or the potential damage that floods are having on the Australian wheat quality or the drought in the US plains. Algeria, Egypt and Saudi Arabia have all bought sizable volumes recently at prices which would suggest it is based on the Russian execution, which will be influenced by their winter weather, Russian taxes and the willingness of the Russian farmer to sell at current levels. EU wheat exports continue to flow and are running about 18% above last season, with reports that China have bought French feed wheat for the Jan-March position. Malting barley this week, the UK malting barley market has ceased trading for now. Even those maltsters who were buying the April to June 2023 position have now withdrawn. With the Ukrainian export corridor now remaining open, wheat futures have taken another large hit this week, reflecting on the malting barley market. Unfortunately, French malting barley is closely linked to the Matif wheat futures, so their malting barley must have fallen in value too. UK and Danish export malting barley must follow this, so that has choked off any export trade for now. The bad news is that the EU has only exported 2.4 million tonnes of barley to the end of October, compared with 4.1 million tonnes last year. Oilseed rape this week. Matif rapeseed has taken a hit. As of Wednesday, the market had fallen for nine days on the previous twelve. This has weighed heavily onto the domestic market, losing over £40 since the start of November. Wednesday saw the market close higher on the back of bargain buying, despite pressure coming from the weaker vegetable oil markets. So, looking at prices this week for November and December feed week, please speak to your open field farm business manager. But moving forward into the new year January 246 to 256, March 248 to 258, May 250 to 260, and November new crop 230. To two hundred and forty pounds. Again, feed barley November and December positions. Please speak to your open field farm business manager. But looking forward to January two hundred eighteen to two hundred and twenty-eight, March two hundred twenty to two hundred thirty, May two hundred twenty-five to two hundred thirty-five, and November new crop one hundred ninety to two hundred pounds. Oil seed rate for December four hundred eighty-five to four hundred ninety-five, January four hundred ninety to five hundred, and March. 492 to 502, with limited carry going forward to the end of the season.
1: Thanks as ever, Kit. The Farming Programme. Five day
3: forecast.
1: More low pressure this week, bringing unsettled weather with plenty more rain. Wet and breezy from the southwest today, highs around 9 Celsius. Much the same tomorrow, with heavy rain expected later in the day. The wind picking up to the mid teens MPH and backing southerly. A drier, calmer day on Tuesday, but more rain and stronger southerly winds for the back end of the week. Nighttime lows down to around 4 Celsius for the first half of the week. A quick reminder that you only have 10 days to go if you're thinking of entering the Soil Association's Best of Organic Market, the Boom Awards. They're an opportunity to promote your business and show your support for the organic farming industry. Details at soilassociation.org and as mentioned crop tech this week in peterborough also on saturday it's the lincolnshire food and drink fair at the showground and i'm looking forward to visiting both maybe i'll see you there i'm steve orchard until then have a great week
0: the farming program with Araquip steel stockholders with ambrook industrial estate grantham bsi iso 9001 accredited